Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, hello. How are you? This is Danielle Delamar, and you are listening to episode 113. I have a quick question for you. Have you signed up for the academic year detox? This is the thing that helps you to process all of the difficult emotions that you've accumulated over the course of the academic year, right? This helps you to clear the junk so that you can begin excavating your career vision. Because I promise you, even if you don't see your career vision, even if you're just like, oh, my job is so hard. I am so over it, but I don't know what else to do. Guess what? It's in there. You have a vision inside of you. (laughs) You just can't see it when you've got a bunch of unprocessed junk. So Come to the Academic Year Detox. This is a half-day retreat on Friday, May 13th, and it's at 9.15 a.m. Pacific Time, 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time. You'll walk out feeling more grounded. You'll walk out feeling clearer. And you get to bring a friend, too. Have I mentioned that? You do. You get to bring a friend. So... For what you pay for the retreat, $67, it's sort of a twofer. You get to bring a friend at no charge. My experience as an academic was that I had these two really, really important and good friends who were struggling in academia just as much as I was. And I relied on them. I relied on my conversations with them, you know, the the coffee dates with them, the walks with them which is why I'm providing the opportunity for you to bring your closest friend who you've been commiserating with all along, right? So come, May 13th, bring your bestie. I'll leave the registration link in the show notes so you can go there, or you can just go to selfcompassionateprofessor.com, don't forget the .com, and then click on Academic Year Detox. And from there, you can just register. So in today's interview, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Melanie Peffer, who has all sorts of wisdom around career wellness and as it relates to pregnancy loss. So listen up, you know, if you're going through this or you have a close friend or family member who's going through this, Melanie has a lot of good advice. If you're feeling alone, right, if you're somebody who has gone through the academic year, having had a miscarriage and nobody around you knows about it, right? None of your colleagues know about it. And you've just sort of had to stuff it and move on with your job. You're going to want to listen to this interview. Melanie is going to make sure you don't feel alone. Melanie is going to make sure you have some resources. And she is hell bent on breaking the silence about pregnancy loss. It's a great interview. Here she is now. Thank you so much for joining our conversation today. I am talking to Dr. Melanie Peffer, who has actually been on the podcast before, 
And I'm so excited to bring her back to talk about something else, um, something a little bit different, um, something that has to do very much with career wellness. Uh, Melanie is the author of the best-selling book, Biology Everywhere. She's also the author of a kid's book um, on biology, and she also has done a TED Talk. Um, she is a teaching assistant professor at CU Boulder, as well as a consultant uh, in science communication. Okay, Melanie, it is so good to have you back. Thank you for being here. Oh, Danielle, thank you so much for having me back today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yes, I am too. And um, the topic is hard. Yes. And I <laughs> applaud you um, for being willing to be vulnerable here. But I know that's really important to you. Um, and that is sort of uh, the basis of your message today. Um, uh, so we started talking a little bit before the recording, and you were talking about how biology everywhere is really important. It's an important thing for people to have an understanding of biology. And you do these like little mysteries on social media and people really like them. And it's kind of fun to know what's going on biologically. Um, but you've also said it's really important to know about biology and have some understanding when life gets difficult and things did get difficult for you. Um, and so could you just start by talking a little bit about what became difficult and why the biology mindset was helpful to you? Sure, that's a good place to start. So the, the central thesis of Biology Everywhere and my Biology Everywhere TED Talk and really the whole project is this idea that it's it's important for the health and safety of society for people to engage with biology. But the problem with doing that is that so many people are afraid to engage with biology or they think they're not smart enough to do it or they had some kind of bad experience in school and they just don't want to anymore. And so again, it's a problem because there's biological issues that we have to engage with every day. You know, it's it's big things like the COVID pandemic. And for our listeners in Colorado, you'll remember when gray wolves were on the ballot. Um, the decision to reintroduce gray wolves in Colorado was something that voters voted on. You know, so these things come up. But I think it's hard to just kind of jump into these big issues and jump into how to vote. And so my argument is always if we start with the little things, it makes it more accessible and it helps us build our confidence. And so that when we start with these little interesting things that are not intimidating, it's easier to engage mm. with the bigger things. And so something else I mentioned in my TED talk, too, is that sometimes having that biology of a mindset can also help us get through life's difficulties. Um, and so in my TED talk, I mentioned um, how when my son was born, that we were ABO incompatible and he had to be on a billy bed and he was jaundiced and it was scary. And then I started thinking about genetics and thinking about what was going on and, and knowing what was going on just made me feel a little bit more empowered in a powerless situation and it was easier to deal with. Now, getting to the, the root of the question, oh, well, what is the difficulty that I ran into? And sometimes biology everywhere comes up in, in difficult ways. And so for me, it's um, getting to the meat of the fact that I've been pregnant six times 
Mm. And I have one living child. Being a lost mom gives you some interesting perspectives on things and also a chance to learn an awful lot about biology and medicine as well. Um, and I think it also emphasizes the point too that, that um, pregnancy loss is extremely common and yet people don't talk about it. So the, the estimates really are about one in four pregnancies, not one in four people. That's a common misconception. Mm. It's one in four pregnancies. And that's still thought to be an underestimate because a lot of people don't report it. Um, or aren't aware that it has happened because um, those numbers really come from when it's there's some clinical evidence for it and not everybody goes to into the doctor they may just miscarry at home so you are teaching biology and you want people to have an understanding yet um, I think when we last talked you said it wasn't clear why you've lost some of your pregnancies. Like it, 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 you didn't know why it happened. Um, am I, tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> so um, yeah, when I mentioned that there's a lot of biology going on and a lot of opportunity to learn. So since the last miscarriage, so, so basically my timeline was is that I had three what are called chemical pregnancies in a row. And a chemical pregnancy is when the only sign that you ever have of being pregnant is a positive pregnancy test, because for whatever reason, you miscarry very soon after that. And we found in that case, because we went in for blood work, that um, I had hypothyroidism, undiagnosed hypothyroidism. So once we got that mm. corrected, that's when my son came along. And so it's little things like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that thyroid hormones were important for pregnancy, and they are. So that was something that I learned. And then more recently, because I've had two nine-week losses in a row now, and that has led to a trip to see a reproductive endocrinologist and just more blood work than you can possibly imagine on more systems than you'd think actually are involved in the process. Mm. And so it, it's been an interesting experience just kind of thinking about all the different ways that your biology comes into play with, with getting a healthy pregnancy outcome. So we have a better idea of what happened now. Um, okay. But some, there's some tough decisions to be made with it. Okay. Um, so I just want to stop here and just say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that you've been going through this. And I, I know that that is your message. Like so many of us are going through it, but we're going through it silently. Um, we're not saying anything. Um, I know I did that. And I, want to ask you about that because you are pretty adamant that we can't do this anymore. Um, we can't do this as a society. We can't do this as like higher ed institutions. Like we cannot be silent about pregnancy loss anymore. No, I don't think we can be silent about it anymore because what happens is that pregnancy loss makes people uncomfortable. And from what I've read about it, it makes people uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. People don't like to talk about sex. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I think people just like to pretend that if you, you know, people like to pretend that we as humans are not animals. Um, but when actually we are 
and people have sex. And so I think people don't like to talk about sex. And I think the other thing is that life and death are very powerful transformative forces and miscarriage puts both of those like right on top of each other. And so it's putting those two things right next to each other, I think makes people uncomfortable. Uh, because mm-hmm. there, you could even argue that those are two like the biggest forces that that drive existence. Because you know we eat so we don't die, um, and so mm-hmm. I think that's part of why it makes people uncomfortable. And I think there's also a lot of um, misconceptions around grieving just in general and what grief means. I feel like there's these cultural perceptions that you know someone dies and you're sad and then you get over it. <laughs> Um, and I kind of wish it was that easy, but it's not. And then also, how do you grieve a, an embryo or a fetus that no one else really knew? Um, maybe because like uh, my grandfather recently died and, you know, I could talk to my parents or I could talk to my husband or I could talk to my son and we could share memories and have that together. But you don't have that with a miscarriage. And so I think that's part of why we get silent about it is that it makes people uncomfortable because no one talks about it. No one knows what to say. And there's no rituals around it. There's no um, this has been written by a couple of people. We don't have a word for a, a bereaved parent. You know, we have orphans and we have widows and we have widowers, but there's not a word or a ritual associated with parents who've lost. And so what happens mm. is that they just kind of fall through the cracks. Um, And that's why a lot of people describe the grief after miscarriage as what's called disenfranchised grief, because it's just not broadly recognized by society. And so when you put these two things together, what happens is that when women have losses, they feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't feel this way because no one else does and no one recognizes it. Um, Mm -hmm. They feel pressure to be quiet about it. When the truth is, Mm -hmm. is that most women that you talk to have had miscarriages and then this leads to a lot of um, inequities. So this is something I was reading about um, in a book, talking about how with a miscarriage, you don't qualify for the same same bereavement rights as you would if you had a stillbirth. Mm. And so even though somebody, so miscarriage is defined as a loss up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. So if you have an 18 week loss, even though you still have to go to the hospital and give birth, it's considered a miscarriage. And so we don't get better support and advocacy for women if we don't talk about it. We don't change the way we treat people after miscarriages if we don't talk about it. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I really appreciate you so much for being transparent about this. Now I have the tools and I know what to do. And I feel really bad that I've ignored other women who've gone through this or Mm. people who've come to me and said, I went through this same experience and I'm so glad that I'm not alone or know that you're not alone. Mm. And so as hard as it is to talk about, it's how we make change. You know, there's someone who I know in the Northern Colorado community who had a loss and the clinic she was at didn't handle it very well. And she went to their board of directors and said, you need to change how you handle this. And so that's how we get change. So as hard as it is to talk about, um, And I've just met so many women who've been through this in silence. And I just find that that makes an already tragic situation even more tragic that women go through this alone and parents Mm -hmm. too, because there's almost no research on um, the father's experience with miscarriage either. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And what I, what I find really sort of strong about you is that you're not just like, uh, we should talk about it. And, you know, it's important to say something, but you are talking about it for real. Like you've published about it, um, like on your blog, you have actually talked about it in your classroom with your students. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, some of the most sort of meaningful um, experiences you've had in talking about it? Yeah, for sure. So I've already mentioned it's been very meaningful, the women who've reached out to me and thanked me for either helping them understand better or helping them not feel alone. So that's been extremely meaningful for me. But, um, you know, when when thinking about change, because I think there's a tendency to be like, oh, this needs to change. I don't know how to do it. And for me, it was a moment that it was, oh, I do know how to do it because I talk about biology in our everyday lives. That's my thing. And really, having a miscarriage is biology in my life. And there's a lot of biology behind it. So the the blog that you mentioned that I wrote, um, it was about the miscarriage that I had in February 2021. And I was teaching genetics that semester and we were right in the middle of the inheritance unit talking about miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it was a uh, middle of the night, kind of had to just get up and write kind of thing. And just, I wrote down my experience and talked about biology everywhere and talked about um, understanding the biology behind miscarriage and the difference between understanding the biology of it and understanding the emotional experience, uh, because those are two very different things. And so understanding the biology of it helped me alleviate some guilt. And if you spend time around women who've had miscarriages or stillbirths or some other kind of um, loss, they always feel guilty. That's just very, very common. And I think it helps sometimes to sit down and say, um, you know, most pregnancy losses happen because of chromosomal problems. And those happen at conception. There's Mm -hmm. almost nothing you can do about it. It, Mm -hmm. It's just bad luck. Um, It becomes a bit of a different story when you're someone like me who's had recurrent miscarriages because that tells us there's something else going on, which we what ended up being the case for me. but I think it's really, really important to help alleviate that guilt. Um, and then also getting back to this point about the difference between the biology and the emotional experience of it. Yes, I'm, I'm well aware <laughs> that I lost an embryo. That is biologically what happened. My husband and I conceived, the embryo was not viable. There was no heartbeat. It had started to have a beating heart that, that didn't um, continue. That's what happened biologically and clinically. Emotionally, it's very different. And, and Danielle, I know you're a mom too, so you, you might be able to, <laughs> to have some perspective on this as well. But when you get pregnant, you know, that bond is immediate. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't fully have the words to explain how powerful that connection is. Um, so even if it is an embryo, and even if I was only pregnant for two months, that bond was there. I Even with my living son, I knew exactly who he was before he was born. I always knew he was mm. there. I had a good sense of who he was going to be. Um, mm. And, you know, all those little things that you imagine you lose. And there's a grief process with that, too. So it's you grieve for the person you didn't get to meet. 
and you grieve for what could have been. I was very excited to see um, share a pregnancy with my son and to to see him be a big brother and to meet another little mm-hmm. person and go through the whole experience again. And that part is much harder to understand. And we're also in a society where people don't talk about feelings and that's considered shameful when I would also Mm -hmm. argue that being able to be aware of your feelings is healthy. And second, being able to talk about that makes you strong, not weak. Again, they're very strong emotions. And I think that's what makes the grief so strong. It's this idea, there's a great quote that I saw in 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 the bereaved parents community and that grief is love with no place to go. Mm, and I feel mm. that. So you are in a university teaching courses in biology, teaching the content of something that you yourself are going through in this very moment. And I'm wondering when you reveal this to your students. Are you willing to bring the emotional piece with it or do you keep it to the biological piece? I think I might know the answer. I think it's a little bit of both because uh, so unfortunately I had a miscarriage during the spring 2021 semester and I had another miscarriage during the spring 2022 semester and both semesters I was teaching genetics to first year undergraduate students. Um, and You know what? I'm just the kind of person I think honesty is the best policy. Mm -hmm. And so my students knew. And I also just because I didn't want to get into all of it with them because I don't think that's necessarily appropriate in the classroom. But I kind of just was honest and say, this is what happened. I will not be in class right now. And just saying, you know what, by the way, I might need to take some breaks in class and step out. And I found that they have been enormously understanding about that. I don't I don't know if it's just the students at my university or that group of students or if just 18 year olds are a little bit more receptive to this stuff. But I have received nothing but support and understanding and kindness from my students. Um, I remember in, in spring 2021, because it was later in the semester when I had my loss, they actually put an entire video together for me. It was so sweet. It's one of those things that I haven't and I could only watch it once because it made me cry so hard. Um, But it was so kind. So they put the video together and they said, we're we're sorry this happened and we missed you. And so they had gotten a whole bunch of different students to all record little videos with their phone. And then someone um, stitched them all together. That is so cute. I know. And then they had also all pooled their money and they sent me, um, it was, it was some kind of odd number because they had just taken everything they could, but it was like a $163 Grubhub <laughs> gift card. Um, you know, and these are, these are just college students and I didn't have a ton of money when I was in college and, you know, it just meant so much, uh, but they've been incredibly supportive. And that has helped too, just knowing that I I haven't been alone on this journey. Um, And a lot of it, and I I need to mention that too, is that I have had people respond poorly (laughs) to my miscarriages, but I have had a lot of people respond very positively and have been so, just have been there so much. And that's really made a difference. Anyway, we're getting back to to the practice of teaching. Uh, So one of the things that I ended up doing, because again, 
I've learned a lot about biology on this journey that I never thought I would take um, and not sure I actually would want to take it again. Um, and one of the things that I learned about was a uh, phenomenon called balanced translocation. And so this is when part of one chromosome breaks off and sticks itself onto another chromosome. And for people who have balanced translocation, they typically don't have any symptoms. The only mm. way you know you have it is if you try to get pregnant or try to reproduce mm. rather, um, because it, it basically doubles your chance of miscarriage. And so it's one in 500 people, which really isn't that rare. <laughs> um, you could say that's actually fairly common. So it's, again, getting back to that advocacy and support and transparency is like, hmm, maybe this should be something that's part of a standard of care that we test for this in people because it's fairly common and it's a very easy test to do. Um, but I ended up taking that and balance translocation was not what caused my miscarriages. But I took that in our unit, we were talking about chromosomal translocations and I turned it into a case study. And it was a case study on recurrent miscarriage. And so there's this couple and it's loosely based on my husband and I, not quite, because again, we didn't have balanced translocation and how you know, they are sweethearts from school and they end up getting married and they have one child and then they decide to have another child and then end up having um, two miscarriages after that. And now they have to go see a fertility specialist and get it all figured out. And so it, it kind of had, had a couple underlying purposes to it because it was wonderful practice for my students because they had to look at a karyotype. So that's a array of all the chromosomes and they had to look and see what was going on. So they had to find that translocation and then they had to take those chromosomes and draw them how they would line up during meiosis and draw how the cell would split and the different gametes that you would get and talk about um, uh, principles from class like the law of independent assortment and how that factors into what kind of gametes that you get and then also talk about why the individual with a balanced translocation doesn't have symptoms and could have a offspring with the same balanced translocation but depending on how they line up you can get improper gene dosing so that was another concept that was built in there so it was a really good way and there's a lot of research backing up why we should use relatable um, examples in the classroom so it was a sure. really good illustration of class content and um, every single character in the case study was someone I knew, someone who helped me, or the names of my babies. Mm. So it was a neat moment for me to hear those names. And it was, it was a way I could honor their memory by keeping them alive and making meaning of what happened and using it to have transformative educational experiences. Because not only did my students learn this class content and get to apply it in this real world situation, they also learned about miscarriage and recurrent miscarriage and the medical specialties that are all involved in miscarriage. Um, that's something that surprised me from the outside is usually we think about pregnancy as just being in the realm of an obstetrician and that's not the case. Um, so somebody, for example, who's a reproductive endocrinologist, they're board certified not only in OB-GYN, but also endocrinology. So that's a lot of school that they have to go through. Um, autoimmune diseases can factor in a miscarriage. So the specialty of rheumatology is something that came up as well. 
Um, thrombophilias, so blood diseases, can also factor into miscarriage. And so it was a way of showing them all these careers and then also thinking about social inequities in medicine and standards of care and what should be standard of care or not standard of care. And is it right that insurance companies currently stipulate that you have to have two to three, it depends on the policy, two to three miscarriages in a row before they will pay for you to have fertility testing done? And that's a lot to tell women that they have to go through before they can start getting answers. And so it gave them an awful lot to think about. Uh, the, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive from the students. Just um, they enjoyed it so much and commented on how it, it just made the class content come to life and it gave them something to think about. And I planted some seeds. They're going to remember that case study. They're going to remember me. And as they go through their adult lives and start to meet more people who've had miscarriages or have them themselves, they will remember that experience. And that's how we get to change again. Mm. And so that case study is currently out for review right now with the National Science Teachers Association. So fingers crossed it will be available for other people to use soon. I have so many questions. Um, I'll just start with the first one. And um, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation about um, the fact that our society has no rituals for, for dealing with pregnancy loss. Um, and then you later talk about how you use the names of your babies in the case study. And I'm wondering, one, do you consider that a ritual that helped you? And two, what other rituals have you found that work for you or others in dealing with this, just for those listeners who are dealing with it right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I did have to find those rituals for myself and I had to find something that made sense for me too. And so I've read um, Victor Frankl's work since the, the most recent miscarriage. Um, so okay. he wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he was a Holocaust survivor and how he made sense of being in a concentration camp and everything that happened to him. And um, I also have read um, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Um, so he, his work is strongly, um, I think, influenced by Frankel's work as well. And one of the, the themes in both of those books, which it really fundamentally comes from Frankel's work, is this idea of uh, tragic optimism. And this idea that when bad things happen, the only thing we can do moving forward is making meaning out of them. Mm. And so I had to find rituals that helped me make meaning out of it because that's the only way forward because you can get really bitter about it and you can get really angry. And mm -hmm. I also want to say that if you feel bitter and angry, those are both perfect, perfectly valid things to think. But, you know, I didn't want to just spend my entire life locked in my bedroom feeling bitter and angry about it. And so I had to find a way to make meaning around it. And so that's why I decided to turn it into outreach and turn it into educational experiences because I wanna change the message for the women coming behind me. And so that's why I gravitated towards those rituals. Um, so other things that I've done or I've heard other people doing, um, I had some jewelry commission on Etsy. Um, nothing, nothing fancy, but I have a necklace. I'm trying to think of how to describe it so that everybody can imagine it. So it's got, it has the birthstones on it from when each of my babies would have been due. And it's got yeah. an angel wing and it also has a charm that says always in my heart. And the um, 
baby that I lost this year, I have a little rainbow charm for him. We found out that he was a boy. So I don't, are you familiar with the term rainbow baby? No. No. So some people don't like the term uh, because they don't want future children to be characterized based on the fact that there was a loss prior to them. I like it because it's the idea that rainbows traditionally symbolize hope. And so a a rainbow baby is one that's born after a loss. So it's this idea that you go through these storms of grief and and the it's really hard to try again after a loss too. And so there's a lot of courage, there's a lot of hope. And this is a question I ask myself every day, is my hope stronger than my fear right now to try again? Um, mm. And so the rainbow represents persevering through it. And so that's why it was particularly hard to lose um, my little boy earlier this year, because I had had enough hope to push through it, and it still had that the undesirable outcome. Mm. And so that's why I decided to get the rainbow charm as well. So I know a lot of other women who've done jewelry. Um, people plant trees, they plant flower gardens just a way to keep them alive. A lot of people journal. Um, I know some people who've had neonatal loss have started foundations. So, so it's again, making meaning through trying to help other people. It makes me wonder then, because I know, I mean, on the one hand, we talk about ritual and making meaning to help other people. And then on the other hand, you also talk about using your professional identity, right? As, uh, as a professor, as somebody, as someone who is in, you know, higher education um, and using that to change things. And so I, I guess I kind of want to merge the two and I'm wondering, what do we need in our institutions of higher education so that people get the chance to grieve in the way they need to? Yeah, this is a really good question. And I I feel like this answer isn't just specific to higher education, but across the board. Um, Miscarriage is loss and it should be treated the way other losses are treated. And so if a workplace offers bereavement leave or to say, oh, so-and-so died, you need to go to a funeral, that's fine, you can miss class, or that's fine, you can take some time off. And I think we need to um, offer the same thing to women who have miscarriages. And granted, I do know people who have had miscarriages and have not been floored by it. There's a lot of different things that go into it. You know, people who didn't want to be pregnant in the first place, and, you know, there's a whole bit of uh, other things you can say about the relief and guilt that kind of comes with that too. And so I I feel like people should be able to kind of come in and say, I've had a miscarriage. I feel like I need to take this much time off and that that should be supported where someone can Mm -hmm. either say, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I just need to take one day off or to come in and be like, yeah, I am, I'm a mess. (laughs) You know, I had to have this Mm -hmm. medical procedure that I did not want to have And, you know, I I was far enough along with my last two pregnancies that I had all the fun postpartum stuff going on with hot flashes and hair loss. And so, you know, I had to physically recover just the way you would after birth. And so Mm. I think if we're going to be supporting people who who um, have to miss work for a funeral or have to miss work because they've had a happy outcome with a, a live birth, we need to do the same thing because there 
depending on how far along a woman was, there is physical recovery involved. And there's definitely a grief process involved. And I think that needs to not be taboo to kind of come in and be like, I need to have bereavement time right now. I, it's one of my benefits and I need to use it right now. And again, I think it's workplace specific. Some people are like, oh yes, of course you had a pregnancy loss. Of course you should qualify for bereavement leave, but that's not, that's not everywhere. So as we've sort of talked through this, my hope, and I know it's your hope too, um, is that there are listeners who can very much relate to this and this conversation helps them to feel less alone. Um, it offers them something maybe they didn't have before, um, maybe even just permission to grieve. Yeah. And so I guess my final question for you is what do you want to say to those listeners that feels like it makes this conversation as complete as it can be? Because I know it's a conversation that needs to be ongoing. I think what I would say to other people who have been through this before or who have not personally experienced it, but know someone who has is the importance of honoring how people feel about it, because there's a lot mm -hmm. of different ways people feel about it. And none of those are inappropriate. It's like I mentioned, the people's experience with miscarriage is going to vary pretty significantly depending on if it was a wanted pregnancy or not, how far along they were. You know, a chemical pregnancy can be very devastating to some people and not be a big deal to others. Um, and like I mentioned, too, that, you know, a miscarriage at five weeks and a miscarriage at 18 weeks look very, very different from a medical perspective. One of those involves going to the hospital. And so I think it's important to honor how everybody feels about it. And that if you don't know how to support someone that you're comfortable saying, I haven't been through this but I want to help. How can I help you? And understanding that sometimes some things we can't fix, <laughs> we can't help. And I think that's another reason why people shut down about it because you can't make it right. You just have to hold it. But what's, what support people can do is to help the bereaved hold it. And that can look a lot of different ways. That can look like going for a walk with someone, it can mean I'll send you dinner. It can mean I'll send you flowers. Just that message of is because for me, it's in such an incredibly lonely journey because people mm. just go deer in the headlights when you bring it up, unfortunately, unless they've been through it too. Um, and I think that more women will be comfortable coming forward if they feel supported. And I also want people who've been through this before to know that they are not alone. Yeah. So even though you might feel alone, you are not alone. And there's a lot of really good support groups out there. There's online support groups, there's in-person support groups, and it can be enormously helpful to go and talk to people who've been through it before and who get it. And also that's where you find out a lot of this, this educational piece <laughs> that we keep coming back to. Things that you didn't even know were a thing. Um, someone asked me this in an online support group the other day because, you know, they had all these losses and they didn't know what was going on. And they're like, what do you mean the doctors found something? And it's like, yes, I went to see a reproductive endocrinologist and they ordered, I don't even want to get into how many tests it was. It was mm. such a scary amount of vials of blood. Um, but yeah, finding out about problems that I didn't even know were things. 
Um, and so that's when you can hear this stuff and then start to, again, advocate for yourself and say, hey, um, I've had a miscarriage and I'd like to have um, the baby tested to see if there's chromosomal problems because that can really uh. help with closure and that can really help with um, planning your next steps. And I didn't even know that was a thing you could ask for until another lost mom mentioned it to me. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Okay. Yep. So I, I think it, there's there's a lot of power in people coming forward to share their stories because when we share our stories, we can get to meaningful change. Because we need to break we need to break the silence around this if we want to do better for women and for their families, if we want to get better research, if we want to get better clinical care. Um, because handing a woman a flyer after she's lost a baby and saying bye, call mm. us if you have bleeding isn't enough either. Amen. Yep. And so I, I know how hard it is to be vulnerable. I'm not saying that isn't difficult. And so if you're in a position where you can help to use your platform, to use your professional credentials, to start getting this message out there so we can help people, you know, that I guess that would be my call to action. Is there anything else you want to say that feels left unsaid? I think one of the hardest lessons I've learned in life and this has really come up with these miscarriages too, is that to fully experience your life, you have to be comfortable feeling the good along with the bad and figuring mm. out how to hold mm. both of those things at the same time. There's, there's a quote that I refer to so often, and it talks about how you hold grief in one hand and gratitude in the other. Because if all you have in your life is gratitude, then you become saccharine and one of those toxic positivity people who really just doesn't understand the experience of, of others. And if you mm -hmm. just hold grief, then you become bitter and cynical and negative about the world. But if you can hold both, that's when you can make meaningful change. And that's what I've tried to do here. Um, is honor my grief, but also not let it consume me and still finding room to be grateful every day. And including being grateful, I'm really grateful for you, Danielle, that you're willing to sit down and have this very difficult emotional talk with me and to help get that message out there that um, women are not alone who go through this. The way we handle this as a society could use a little bit of work and that there's everything to look forward to for a better future for other people to prevent this from happening. Mm. I am grateful to you too, Melanie. And I want to know if um, you're willing to put your contact information out there for anybody who is interested in, in talking about this further with you. Yes, absolutely. Please reach out. I'm always happy to help. Um, this is what I do. <laughs> this is what, this is what gets me going is helping people not only get excited about biology, because that's kind of where we start with the biology everywhere mysteries, but understanding biology is a way forward. Um, and so whether mm -hmm. that's alleviating guilt around miscarriage or finding a way forward after miscarriage, because you don't know if there's a biological reason for what's going on or for changing, again, coming back to standards of care, should a woman be able to walk in and say, you know, and I'm planning a pregnancy, I'd like to have my thyroid tested or I'm planning a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see if either my partner or I has a balanced translocation because I've I feel like this should be an option for people from the get-go, not after loss. Mm -hmm. um, should we get in touch with you via your blog, via email, LinkedIn? What's the best way? So the best way to get a hold of me would be email. 
Um, and my email is on my website. So you can go to my website at www.biologyeverywhere.com. And that's also where you'll find all my social media handles. So I'm on Instagram at Biology Everywhere Book. I am on Facebook as Melanie Peffer. And I'm on Twitter as Melanie underscore Peffer as well. And you can also find me on LinkedIn again with just my name. Awesome. Melanie, thank you so much for your time and this conversation today. And, you know, I'm, I guess I'm just feeling what you had mentioned earlier about like, we need to have these conversations so we can start healing society. And I feel like the work you're doing is um, making a little dent in that healing that needs to be done. So thank you. Absolutely. And I, I, I really sincerely hope that listening to this podcast today has been healing for other people too. Mm. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.